We are in the book of Hebrews this morning, continuing in chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. You can also place a finger in Leviticus 16, because that's where we're going to be moving back to here in a moment. Hebrews is just going to be sort of an escort to send us back into our dusty old book of Leviticus. The passage that we've been in these last few weeks that we're going to continue to be in for the next couple of weeks is verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. I want to tell you right now that I don't know of a section of Scripture, five verses, that are as, that as concisely put together the purpose of the incarnation as nicely as these passages. If you're sitting here saying, man, who cares? What even is an incarnation? We're talking about why Christ took on flesh. We're talking about basic Christianity 101. This is a go-to text for when your kid asks you or when your wife asks you or when your husband asks you or when your workmate asks you or when your friend or neighbor asks you, why did Jesus have to take on flesh? Why did Christmas happen? Why did the incarnation happen? This is a go-to text. Three really nice, robust reasons are developed in this passage of him taking on flesh and blood, first to destroy Satan, Second, to deliver his people from lifelong slavery. And third, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest and to make propitiation for our sins. The third is where we're going to be camping out today. For the sake of context, I'm going to read all five verses and then we'll camp out in verse 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that being flesh and blood. The first purpose, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The second purpose, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, a third purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This morning, we're going to focus primarily on the second half of verse 17. I'm going to read verse 17 again, and we're going to climb into this Um, truth that's being uh, communicated here by the Hebrews preacher. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me define a couple of things for you before we continue. I don't want to make any assumptions about what you know or don't know So if this is basic for you, then just hang in there. If it's not, it'll be illuminating. First of all, the high priest. What is a high priest? The priesthood was established in ancient Israel, which would have been about 1,500 years before these words were written to the church in Rome, this Hebrew church, likely in Rome. The book of Hebrews is going to do a nice job in the next few months or years, however long we might spend there, in explaining the priesthood. The book of Hebrews mentions high priests 17 times. And in every occasion, it's either putting Christ out there as the perfect and final and complete high priest, or it's contrasting the ancient high priests 
with Christ. This book is going to bring into nice, nicely, bring into shape this picture of the high priest. But I'll tell you this morning, just kind of put it in simple terms, it's the highest ranking priest. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest. And hear this, Christ was the last. Aaron was the first and Christ was the last. Another word I want to define for you in the next couple moments because it's going to come back over the course of the morning and especially at the end of the message is the word propitiation. It's a word that we've connected to as a church over the last few years, but I don't want to make any assumptions that, anybody know, that everybody knows what it means. I was in my 30s before I knew what this word meant and it is the essence of the gospel. Before I define it, let me tell you this, that there must be a payment for sin. We don't have the kind of God that winks at sin and says, ah, let's just play like it didn't happen. Ah, that's okay. Let's just imagine that it never happened. We have a God that by definition of his holiness and his justice must have a payment for sin. There must be an accounting and a reckoning for sin. And this word propitiation is the way that's accomplished. It connects to the word atonement, which means to make amends. It's, you could say, to account for sin, there must be some way to do that. And the word propitiation bumps into how that's accomplished through something else bearing God's wrath. The way I read this word when I see it in the scripture is I read it as wrath absorber. I think like a guy, I think of shock absorbers and I think of things like that often. I'm a guy. So wrath absorber just works for me. I'm gonna reread the passage to where you can kind of connect to that truth. Christ became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to absorb wrath for the sins of God of the people. Now, having given you those tools, I want to climb into where this Hebrew church would have gone in their minds as they heard the Hebrews preacher reference a merciful and faithful high priest making propitiation for the sins of the people. We're going to the dusty old book of Leviticus chapter 16. Let's go ahead and turn back there if you're not there already. In some ways, in this, for us to get that this morning and for us to get a good part of the rest of the book of Hebrews, we have to be sort of Hebrewized. We have to sort of get educated on what the Jewish mind would have understood, their equipment and tools that they would have had to work with in order to get the points that are being made. So this morning, we're going to be Hebrewized by going to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, you can consider as sort of a continuation of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells the story of the nation of Israel being led out of Egypt, about God giving his law at Sinai. Scott has been teaching on that on Wednesdays for the last few months, at least while we were meeting on Wednesdays. If you'd like to go back and listen to some of that teaching, it's available online. Be very helpful background. But the book of Leviticus was written about a month or so after the tabernacle was completed. The tabernacle was a um, 
a structure that the Lord gave some instructions on how to build so that God might dwell with his people. That might seem like a small thing, but let me add some adjectives in there. So a holy God might dwell with an unholy people. He made this structure and he made this system that's called the tabernacle and then the sacrificial system. The book of Leviticus sort of fleshes out the latter. It's the instructions provided for how from week to week and day to day, month to month, year to year, they are to dwell with this holy God and the holy God with his people. Now, you may remember from last week, I introduced you in chapter 10 to a couple of guys named Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Those were one of the early or a couple of the earliest priests, not high priests yet, but a couple of the earliest priests. You met Aaron last week as well. Chapter 10 tells the story of Nadab and Abihu. Chapters 11 through 15 then deal with the issues of uncleanness. The nation of Israel here in these 11, chapters 11 through 15 are getting instructions on how to get clean in order to prepare for what happens in chapter 16, the day of atonement. It's how they're supposed to deal with their uncleanness from day to day and week to week as they're coming and going either to or in the tabernacle. Now, I'm going to read this chapter, chapter 16, but I want you to pay attention to the main characters. Let me tell you who they are. First main character is the nation of Israel, collectively. The second main character is Aaron, The third main character we're going to group together, we're going to call the herd. You'll understand what I'm talking about as we read it. And the fourth main character, which may or may not be a character at all, I'll explain this in a moment, will be someone possibly or something called Azazel. Okay, that sounds almost serious. I'm going to have special attention this morning. People are really going to be paying attention, at least to that point. The people, Aaron, the herd, and Azazel. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. You remember last week where I shared the story of Nadab and Abihu. The reason they died is because they went freestyle in their worship. They offered what the text calls strange fire. We don't have any more explanation than that other than to know that they stepped outside of God's pattern and God's way to worship and did their own thing. And they offer strange fire and the fire actually consumes them as the offering and they become the offering and are sublimated up to God. It's tied to this story and it's background for this story. So we need to have Nadab and Abihu in view, freestyle worship in view as we start this chapter 16 God connected the dots here, so we need to make sure we connect the dots. Tell Aaron, Moses says, or God says to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, maybe like Nadab and Abihu did as they went freestyle, before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that a not die like his boys did. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat But in this way, 
Aaron shall come into the holy place on my terms, according to my design and according to my plan and my pattern. He will come into the holy place with the herd. I'm going to call it the herd. A bull from the herd for a sin offering with a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel. Here's a couple more critters to add to the herd. Two male goats for a sin offering and one ram, he's already been mentioned, for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, I'm going to continue reading, but I want to just kind of encourage you to climb into this text. I've sat in many a sermons, uh, many a sermon over my life, and I know how easy it can be to just come and go and to just exist. And you're thinking about lunch, you're thinking about all you're going to do on Sunday afternoon. And I beg you to park those things and for a moment become a Hebrew. For a moment become a Jew. You know what happened to Nadab and Abihu. You walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. You heard Sinai quake. If God's speaking through Moses about some specific details about how things are going to work in the tabernacle, you're paying attention. Become a Hebrew and climb into this story. Listen. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Some of this is redundant. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that's over the testimony so that he does not die as opposed to his boys who did because they did their own thing. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with its finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of the uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that's before the Lord 
and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an atonement or an atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. Just consider for a moment, climbing into this story, and your iniquities are confessed as Aaron is confessing these iniquities of the sin of Israel. Your transgressions, your sins are connected to this. Confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering. That's where the ram comes back in and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come back into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin, their flesh, their dung shall be burned up with fire. He who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come back into the camp. And this shall be a statute to you forever. And in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy, holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. This is a summary of what's just happened on this day. He makes atonement for the holy sanctuary. He makes atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He makes atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Now, let's go back to the main characters. I hope you paid attention watching for the people, watching Aaron, watching the herd, and then maybe have some questions about Azazel. In this chapter, there's clearly a central role for the high priest, for Aaron, but there's also a role for the people. 
The last five chapters have to do, have to do with dealing with your uncleanness. Dealing with your uncleanness in preparation for this sober day where your sins are dealt with. The people are to come prepared, and at the end of the chapter, if you were paying attention, God gives them a couple of commands. This is going to be very relevant for us in a few minutes at the end of the morning. The people have a clear role in this story. Aaron, obviously, has a role in this story. He is to be cleansed, he's to be clothed, and he is to be accompanied. First of all, cleansed. He's supposed to bathe his body in water. Now, I used to be a little boy, and I know how little boys like to wash their hands. And I know what moms have to say to little boys, you need to go back and use soap, because I can tell clearly you didn't use soap. What that tells me about this picture of him washing with water is that in many ways, it's symbolic. You know as well as I do, water doesn't get your hands clean. You can take a water shower or a water bath and you're not fully clean. You need some sort of detergent. You need some sort of soap. But according to our God, this is God reckoning them clean as they do what he commands. You wash with regular old water and I will reckon you clean. You're going to do it according to my terms, like Nadab and Abihu did. My terms, by my design, you wash with water. Secondly, you're to be clothed appropriately. Now, at the end of Exodus and on into Leviticus, there's lots of detail that's given on the attire of the priests. They have some fancy duds. Let me just share a little bit of that with you. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. It's pretty impressive. Back in Exodus chapter 39, listen to some of the colors and some of the details. The priestly garments have blue and purple and scarlet yarns of finely woven garments. The priest is to wear an ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They're going to have hammered gold leaf on the ephod. They're going to have onyx stones and gold filigree and engravings. They're going to have a a breast piece with gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with all sorts of stones, sardius, topaz, carbuncle, Emerald, sapphire, diamond, jacinth, agate, amethyst. All these stones representing the nations are the tribes of Israel. Then they're going to have this beautiful robe woven of all blue. Coats woven of fine linen. A plate that they wear on their turban made of pure gold. Sounds pretty fancy and it sounds pretty colorful. But over here in chapter 16, Aaron's not clothed that way. What Aaron is about to do in chapter 16, as shadow of what Christ has done for us, is the work of a slave. He's wearing the garments of a slave. Dealing with the sins of the people is not a fancy, impressive work. He's wearing a holy linen coat, linen undergarments, a linen sash around his waist, in a linen turban. He's to be cleansed, 
He's to be clothed like a slave, like a servant. And he's to be accompanied. He doesn't come in there by himself. He's to have the herd with him. First in the herd is the bull. The bull is going to be a sin offering for himself, for his family. That's key. See, if he doesn't atone for his own sins and for the sins of his family, he can't deal with the people's sins. So the first offering is to cover his own sin. The next critter in line is the ram. This ram becomes a burnt offering. And as I mentioned later on in the chapter in verse 24, it's sort of used at the end of the day, kind of a cleanup offering. Then there's two goats. Goat number one, goat number two. Goat number one is a sin offering for the Lord. It's making atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and sins. This first goat is more about cleansing the tabernacle of the uncleanness of the people than it is about cleansing the people yet. The people haven't been cleansed yet. The first goat is to cleanse the tabernacle. The second goat is a live offering. This is a special, special part of the Day of Atonement. This live offering is to be sent away into the wilderness for Azazel. I'll mention more about Azazel here in a moment. Aaron is to place both hands on his head and confess over this live goat the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And in so doing, God reckons them placed on this goat. Just like water doesn't cleanse your hands, you need some sort of detergent, but God reckons them cleansed. He reckons that goat bearing the sins of Israel. Aaron, if he's going to follow God's design, he's going to place his hands on that live goat, confess the sins of the people, and your sins are placed on that goat's head. It's not just figurative, it's in reality. Their sins are born on that head. This goat bears all their iniquities to a remote place and he's let free to die in the wilderness. Now, Azazel. Azazel is a word that has been literally lost in translation. We have two hints. The first hint leads us in the direction that possibly he's some sort of wilderness demon. The ancient mind believed that the wilderness had demons and demonic influences out there in the wilderness apart from the people. And this Azazel is possibly some sort of wilderness demon. There's some indication this word also could be, not be a being at all, but it just means complete destruction that this goat that is turned over to Azazel or taken led out to Azazel is led out to complete destruction in the wilderness. We don't know, and anybody that stands firmly on one or the other really is, has a difficult time of doing that and is unfairly landing. Whatever the case, this we know, it is not an offering made to some demon. 
it makes me think and really enjoy and realize that when Christ was sacrificed on Calvary, there was no payment made to Satan. God owes Satan nothing. There's no payment made to this if it is a demon. And in fact, the next chapter, in chapter 17, verse 7, it says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. This is no offering made to some demon or some wilderness being. If anything, if it's a being, it is a goat bearing the sins of the people that goes out like this. We're sending this sin out to its author. We're sending it back out from the one who dished it out from the one who introduces it to the people. We're not appeasing any sort of demon. Now, big picture in this chapter. If you've paid attention, if you climbed into it as a Hebrew, you realize that this is a pretty cumbersome day. It's a cumbersome day to get ready for. You gotta be properly cleansed, properly clothed. You gotta be well accompanied. I thought about Aaron sort of being like one of those dog walkers in New York City. You ever seen those guys? They have like 12 leashes and all these dogs, 12 dogs, I guess, that are connected to the 12 leashes and they're trying to keep them all in order. I'm imagining Aaron going into the tabernacle with a bull. Just a bull is gonna be enough for me. And then he's got a ram also and a couple of goats. As he's walking in with this herd, I would just imagine that the people are attentive and hushed and they're hopeful. Aaron, I hope you do this right, brother. I hope you don't drop dead in the Holy of Holies. I hope you don't offer strange fire and go off God's plan because I'm really hoping you get to the point where you take my sin and lay it on the head of that goat that goes into the wilderness. I'm hopeful Because after all, I know exactly what happened to Nadab and Abihu. There's a lot riding on this day that is done well. Aaron is paying for the sins of the people, or he's making a payment for the sins of the people after he makes payment for his own sins. There's stuff dying everywhere that day. There's all kind of slicing and dicing and blood being splattered everywhere. It's a messy day, messy work. And then the high point of this day, really the climax in a lot of ways of this day, and the only visible public part of this day where the nation of Israel could have watched the whole event was the final goat sent into the wilderness. Imagine this goat for a moment. Imagine this moment. In time, if you're a nation of Israel, imagine this one man is chosen to lead the little goat into the wilderness. Let's make it personal. Brad Gallion, you're chosen to lead the little goat into the wilderness. We watch you lead the goat into the wilderness after Aaron has placed both hands on his head, confessing my sin and your sin placing them on his head. Imagine the feeling as we get to this point, celebrating, thank goodness, Aaron is still alive. 
He must have done it right up to this point. He survived the whole ordeal so far. And we get to this final quiet march away from the camp. Away being the key word. This final quiet march where you see your sins being dealt with where you see your sins being carried away. Makes me think of Christ being led down the Via Dolorosa to be sacrificed on Calvary outside the camp. Quiet, a quiet march, and all you have to do is watch. All you have to do is watch as you watch the salvation and the Yeshua of the Lord do the work for you. Brad's the only one that's coming close to working, and he's just for a stroll. God does the work. He made a way to deal with your sin. Man, do you enjoy this goat? Are you enjoying this moment? And then this high day ends with a command to afflict yourselves and to do no work. Afflict yourselves in this context would have meant fasting and praying. The only approach after you've seen what you've seen, I don't even know if that's good grammar, after you've seen, observed what you observed, is sobriety. It's not a lighthearted thing you just observed. You just saw your sins carried away by an innocent other. The only appropriate response is to afflict yourselves with sober fasting and prayer and don't you dare work the rest of this day. Don't you dare work the rest of this day. As you cease from your work, you remember the work that was done for you. That's what our Sabbath rest is every week. That's our Sabbath rest in Christ every day. We're remembering the work that was done for us. Don't you dare work this day as you remember that your salvation was earned by another and you didn't and you don't and you can't add one thing to it. Your work is gonna come on the morrow, but it's gonna be a responsive work, not a participating work. You didn't participate in this salvation. You are simply going to work in responding to it. I love the way the rest of the book of Leviticus unfolds. Chapter 17 to the rest of the book is all about holy living. Think about that for a minute. Chapter 17 through the rest of the book is all about holy living because of what's been done for you in chapter 17, chapter 16. Your sins were carried away into the wilderness. Now you go live holy. Now you go live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now you go live in response to what's been done for you because all you had to do on that day was watch. All you had to do was watch. What I want to do in these next couple of minutes is I want to contrast some of these main characters with our Savior. I have five contrasts. 
and they're relatively brief. But I want you to hang in there and get them. You've done the work to engage these and enjoy these. The first contrast is the contrast of the priests and the high priests in general with our faithful high priest. Remember I mentioned Leviticus chapter 10. It's got to be in view right here that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire, did their own thing, and they became the offering because they were unfaithful. That's backdrop for what unfolds here in this chapter. They were unfaithful. Maybe on this first day, maybe on the years after that, Aaron did a good job on the Day of Atonement, but Aaron by nature wasn't perfect. We can click off Nadab and Abihu as not so faithful, in fact, unfaithful. Consider for a moment Aaron. Story of Aaron back in Exodus chapter 32. Listen to this account. You don't need to turn there. I just want you to listen. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Same Aaron. Now, this is before the consecration. This is before this day of atonement. And they said to him, Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. These are the same hands that laid on the head of the goat that went into the wilderness. Think about that for a minute. The hands that fashioned a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Aaron led the day. Just in case you think that Aaron somehow through his uh, appointment as a priest, maybe somehow through this day of atonement, went on to serve faithfully in every respect. On later in the book of Numbers, chapter 12 begins with this account. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. This is days, weeks, possibly months after the first day of atonement. They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? And the Lord heard it. Miriam goes on and gets a bad case of the leprosy. Aaron somehow leaves unscathed, but he's as guilty as he was before he's consecrated as a priest subverting God's leadership. Nadab, Abihu, unfaithful. Aaron, not much better. 800 years later, maybe. Let's see how the priests are doing. Maybe 800 years, 900 years later. 
five or 600 years before Christ? Let's see how the priests are doing. The word of the Lord came to me, this is being Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. That's the priests. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. Priesthood isn't going very well. Just in case you think things might have gotten better by the time Christ shows up, listen to this account in the book of John. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's raising Lazarus from the dead, and believed in him, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, here chief priests, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. John, it throws in there, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied unwittingly that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The priesthood is not going well. Nadab, Abihu, unfaithful. Aaron, unfaithful. The priests and shepherds in Ezekiel 34, unfaithful. Caiaphas, unfaithful to the end. Israel did not do a good job with this office. Christ, on the other hand, proved faithful. Christ proved faithful. Second contrast. These will go quicker. Aaron was cleansed and clothed. Lots of detail building into that. Turn to the book of Hebrews. You'll need to be ready at Hebrews chapter 7. Not for this point, but for the next. All this detail that goes into Aaron's garments and what he's to wear. Is cleansing this necessary before this priestly work on this high day? And then there's Christ. Contrast Aaron, the high priest, on this high day with Christ. The only cleansing that I can find that takes place in the immediate period before Christ's sacrifice or cross is not him being cleansed, but him washing the disciples' feet. 
This is an altogether different high priest. Aaron's got to cleanse himself. Jesus is cleansing someone else. Aaron has got to be wearing these holy linen garments, all being unimpressive and slave-like. They better be holy and they better be covering him under garments and all. And Jesus, on the other hand, is stripped twice, not once, but twice. He's stripped and beaten. He's clothed again, marched off to Calvary, stripped again, and dies on the cross naked. Contrast, Aaron cleansed and clothed with Jesus naked and bloodied. Man, what I see here is that Aaron, all that he had to do to cover his uncleanness, Christ didn't have to do. All that he had to wear to become presentable, Christ didn't have to wear because Christ's dirt is cleaner than our clean. You hear that? Man, he's a faithful high priest. And his dirt is cleaner than our clean. His nakedness is more presentable than our finest linen. Next, contrast. Aaron, although he doesn't have any priests going in with him, he's accompanied. He's got a herd that's going in there with him. Christ, on the other hand, is by himself. When he makes this sacrifice, there's no herd. It made me think of this passage in John chapter 13. Listen to this. You don't need to turn there. Just you may jot it down. Chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. No partners, no herd, no teammates. Only one could go where he was going because only one could do what he was going to do. He wouldn't need a herd of innocents because he would be and is the only innocent that's offered. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't need the herd. Can you enjoy that for a minute? Can you enjoy the solitude of that walk? Enjoy seeing Christ walk by himself to do something that nobody else could do where he didn't need a bunch of critters to propitiate for him. He propitiated for you. He made the payment and became the payment for you. The next contrast is Aaron's good day's work. Aaron, you did a good job today on Leviticus chapter 16. 
man, you did it all right. You hung in there. You didn't die in the Holy of Holies. You got to the point where you laid our sins on the head of the goat that goes into the wilderness. Good job, Aaron. We're going to contrast your work with Christ's work. Aaron, on your best day, your work only lasts for a year. (laughs) On your best day, you take the finest bull in the herd. On your best day, you take the nicest ram with the biggest horns, thinking that it's big billy goat ram, beautiful. You take the two most innocent lambs, goats you can find. On your best day, your work only lasts for a year. But Christ's work, on the other hand, lasts forever. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly. Look at these words. They go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices, as fine as they might be, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You're standing in that crowd that day and you hear your sins placed on that goat's head and you leave and for a year you're thinking, man, it's good. But guess what? You're not perfected yet. As graceful as God was to give the nation of Israel and to give all mankind a way to where he could dwell with humankind, that wasn't the perfect way. It was shadow to this substance that Christ offered and achieved The gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered, man, once for all. Bam! Man, you see the high priest coming and going every year? Let's say you live 50 years. You watch the Day of Atonement for 50 years. Like, man, I saw it 50 times. It was awesome. 50 great jobs. Man, Aaron did a good job. All that repetition. But Christ entered, entered, entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Man, that's good medicine right there. That makes my burdens lighter. I don't know about you seriously, but that makes my burdens lighter. You have to know that I have burdens too. I mention it often at the beginning of these sermons. Bring your burdens. You think I don't have problems too? This makes those burdens lighter. It puts them in perspective. You have money issues, health issues, marriage issues, parent issues, kid issues. Name the issue. It sheds light on them where you walk away and go, wait a second. My Lord entered once for all. 
It would have been a special grace for God to make a way for you to even have your sins atoned for for a year. The Day of Atonement would have been a big day for you if you were Jewish. Big day, seeing that goat walk off into the wilderness, Brad Gallion leading him out. Good job, Brad, go. That would have been a big day. That pales in comparison to what we can enjoy every day. Every day in every problem that we have. Name the problem. Loneliness, depression, isolation, addiction. Name the problem. This sheds light on it. Our Lord entered once for all. If that doesn't inform that, that's what faith and worship is. You want to know what faith and worship is? That's what it is. Where this invades all that junk that you carry around and deal with week after week. When it doesn't, it's faithlessness. When it does, you're talking about being salty, bright, and aromatic when you're in that mess and you're saying, yeah, but you know what? I enjoyed three words this morning that have shaped my week. Once for all. Honey, you don't deserve to be loved well right now. But you know what? I'm going to because the three words I heard this morning, once for all. I want to love you as Christ loved the church, even if you don't deserve it. And I pray that God will be glorified in that. And I pray that your heart will be softened. But I'm not going to do it just so you'll be nicer to me and won't be so difficult. Because then I would be a consumer. I'm going to do it because I'm fueled by worship. Two different things. Two totally different things. Man. Once for all. Therefore, where did I stop? 13. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more, another three great words, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Man, that is some serious good medicine right there. Chapter 10, verse 11. Here's another little big old, big old helping of good medicine. Every priest stands daily at his surface, service, offering repeatedly. I love the words that the Hebrews preacher uses. He wants you to just get the routine of it where you're going, oh man, there the priest goes, goes again. Repeatedly, daily, yearly. All these INGs he puts on, sacrificing, cleansing, making sacrifice for himself. Year after year after year, every priest stands daily at his service, offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered, another three good words, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know why he sat down? Because the work was done. And that's where he's seated right now, seated and in session. The work is done. Waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. I hope that sounds familiar. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jump down to verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, i.e. sins, there's no longer any offering for sins. 
Aaron, you did a really good job today. I'm thankful for what you did. I'm thankful that you survived. But you know what? Your best day, you covered me for a year. But according to this, it wasn't even really a legitimate covering. It didn't really take away my sins. But what Christ did has covered me for all time. Man. The last contrast. Contrasting that only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. But yet, something happened on the cross. Let me share a passage with you from the book of Mark. Christ is hanging from the cross. Listen to what happens in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, stay over there in Hebrews. I want you in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this account though. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered in a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, man, truly this man was the son of God. The thing I want you to see there is I want you to see this curtain torn in two from top to bottom and hear this passage and enjoy it. It's a continuation of where I stopped reading just now. Therefore, in light of this high priest offering the perfect sacrifice of himself. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we? It used to just be the high priest. We? (laughs) You mean we all can go in there? You mean that that curtain is torn in two and we all have access into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, amen? (laughs) Has anybody seriously enjoyed the great high priest this morning? Yes. Yes. How great is our high priest. We have confidence, we, to enter the high and holy place. Man, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about all that unfolded in Leviticus chapter 16, and I was thinking about how it ended with the charge or command of the nation of Israel, where he says, I want you to afflict yourselves And don't do any work. 
And I was thinking to myself, all right, I bet there's a version for us. If the Hebrews preacher has sort of recast as Christ being the high priest and being the sacrifice, I bet he's recast the command. And sure enough, it's the next verse. Here's our command in response to what's been done. Verse 22, therefore, back in verse 19, because of all that he's done, verse 22, there's three let us's. They begin verse 22, verse 23, and 24. They all start with two words, let us. Put yourself in there. Put your family name in there. If you don't have a family, it's just you. Put your name in there. Therefore, let first draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to this God with full assurance. We don't have to creep or crawl into the Holy of Holies. We can draw near with full assurance, with boldness, with confidence, because you saw your lamb led away, bearing your sins. That's why. Not because you got it going on, because you don't. I know you. Neither do I. We enter boldly, not because you've had a good day. Man, I listen to Christian music. I got up this morning first thing. I turned on Christian music. I had a balanced diet for breakfast. I had some vitamins. I listened to Christian music on the way to work. I let somebody cut in front of me. I was such a good Christian today. I can enter boldly because of the kind of Christian that I have been today. We don't enter boldly because you've had a good day. We enter boldly because you saw your lamb led away, bearing your sins. On your best day, you still need that lamb. And then on your worst day, you can enter just as boldly. Enter just as boldly knowing that he bore that sin. Now, you may come bringing some confession, but you enter boldly because of his work. Man, it's a great picture of baptism here too. Drawing near with a true heart of full assurance, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what baptism is. It's an appropriate response to what he's done. The second let us, our charge, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to our faith even and especially when things are difficult and trying. Hebrew church, including Rome. Even and especially when things are difficult, hold fast to your faith. Hold fast, people of God. Grip it. When you feel your fingers slipping, find somebody to help you grip it. Hold fast. And the third thing, let us consider in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm gonna tell you right now, 
You can't stir anybody up and you can't be stirred up if you're neglecting the gathering of God's people. <laughs> Nobody's checking roll on you. I promise. This ain't a roll issue. This is, a, this is why you gather, to be stirred up. Were you stirred up this morning? Anybody? Has anybody been stirred up by the reality of our high priest this morning? I know we're all discreet. Can it, I mean, anybody stirred up? Amen. That's what happens when you gather with God's people. You're stirred up. Man, I'm going to tell you what, between Sundays, I often go through these periods where I'm down and I'm struggling and like, man, I'm low. I can't wait for Sunday when I'm stirred up by gathering with God's people and I'm singing true things about God and I'm hearing other people's voices sing true things about God and I'm enjoying fellowship with God's people and I'm hearing true things preached and exposed about God. It's what happens when we gather. Man, you want to charge to how to respond to this atonement that's been earned and achieved for us? There's three really nice ones right there. Draw near in full assurance. Hold fast, even and especially when things are crummy. And don't neglect to gather. Stir each other up. The last one just sort of seems sort of like water washing to me. That's the way people reduce it sometimes. Man, you know, you want to wash your hands with water, you know that you're not really clean. Well, you know what? God reckons you clean. If God reckoned Aaron clean by washing and bathing his water, his body with water, I'm going to reckon he's saying this is true, that this is true as well. That if you neglect to gather, guess what? You're not going to be stirred up, and you're not going to stir anybody else up. It's easy to reduce it. They're just trying to keep their attendance up. Man. Golly, I know y'all don't do that, but some people do. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us stir and be stirred. Now, we're going to have our Lord's Supper. I'm going to share a passage with you as we have our Lord's Supper. I think is a fitting passage considering that we were in Leviticus. You don't need to turn there unless you just really would like to follow along. It's not real interesting. I'm not trying to entertain you. It's just true. Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses. Now, remember, this is in the book of Leviticus. This is the, how God is going to dwell with his people. I want you to see some of the things that take place. One thing in particular. This is going to be very familiar considering what we're about to do. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying this, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth and the altar all night until the morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put on his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it. The fat of the peace offerings, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Okay, nothing really exciting there so far. Just some details. And this is the law of the grain offering. 
The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the offering, and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that's on the grain offering and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It just sounds like just daily worship stuff so far. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. I don't know how much you've read the book of Leviticus, but a big part of the sacrificial system involves the priests and the worshipers eating portions of the sacrifice. Aaron and his sons here shall eat it. It shall be eaten unleavened in the holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. They shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I've given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, that is the food, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it. Now, that's obviously not true now, but take the imagery. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offering. Watch this. Whatever touches them, this food, shall become holy. Interesting, isn't it? As you actually eat the offering, you are made holy, a reckoned, better term, in the eating of it. Continues down in 24. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It's most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place, it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches it, its flesh shall be holy. Taking and eating the offering holifies the worshiper. You see that? That's pretty cool. I mean, that's not something I've really ever paid attention to, but it's cool. Whatever touches this flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. As far as I'm going to read. What I want to do is I'm going to come back to why this is relevant after we pass out the elements we're going to have a couple of songs while we pass out both elements, and then we're going to take the supper together as we look at Christ doing something in Matthew. Let me pray. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we will eat rightly. Lord, I am thankful that if we take these elements by faith, that you do something to us. That you show up and bless us in the taking of these elements. I'm thankful that as we gather weekly and we take these elements and we take them together with people sitting next to us or in, behind us or in front of us, people that we may have shaken their hands, we may have talked to, we may have visited with, that we are stirred up I'm thankful that we're participating in an appropriate response to seeing our goat, in our case, our lamb, being led away, bearing our sins. Lord, I pray that it will work in us a sobriety. 
a seriousness about what our Savior has done. I pray we'll spend these next few minutes well in response to what we've considered that your son did for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Man, I struggle so much with um, how easy, well, it's not easy, how easy it is to fool people with how insignificant things are. I don't know if you can tell, but I get aggravated with how easy it is for someone to reduce Sundays to such a low view of gathering of God's people, where it's just optional. I'm tired. I shopped yesterday. What? I went shopping. My feet are tired. My kids are tired. What? I mean, it's so easy to reduce. It's like, that's just water. You're not really clean, Aaron. I was looking at Aaron Adele when I said that. It's funny. <laughs> it's just a little piece of bread. <laughs> Seriously? Why would you race to go get a piece of bread? Why would you, if you're breathing, going to gather with God's people so you can get a little wee piece of bread? It's not even going to fill you up. And it's just juice, it's not blood. I mean, like he says, blood. That might be significant if you're going to drink blood. It's just juice. But God reckons it more. (laughs) God reckons this more. When we gather here, us just gathering and hanging out for a little while and me doing a little talky talk and y'all singing some songs and us going home. He reckons something significant happening to you and through you. He reckons this more. Let's enjoy God and his perfect design and what he's done in and through carpenter. He's just a carpenter. He made the same stuff that I'm made of exactly. Israel, it's unimpressive. Yeah. Bread, juice, the hope of the world. We know better because our eyes have been opened to ultimate reality. Let's take and eat, enjoying ultimate reality. Take and eat. I was going to share a passage with you. I'll share it now. Watch the high priest. Man, never thought him operating this way when he does this. That's why I shared the passages over in Leviticus where the priests are eating some of the offering and they're giving it to the worshipers. Watch this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now, we know who Jesus is. He's the high priest. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, I'm reckoning this more. It's my body. Why? Because I say it is. I hung Orion and Pleiades. If I say it's my body, it's my body. Take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, drink a bit, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for many, or poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Man, our Lord's Supper is no small thing. Our gathering is no small thing. Singing true songs about a living and seated Lord is no small thing. Man, let me pray. We'll continue in song and worship. God, I pray that for a moment this morning that we bumped into the gravity of this journey that we're on. I pray this morning that the gravity of this journey that we're on has invaded and will continue to invade these little Monday problems and Thursday issues and Friday afternoon spaces, whether it's a workspace or a den or a kitchen or a front yard. Lord, I pray some of those awesome series of three words that we read in Hebrews. I pray they will give us a hope when all seems hopeless and a peace that passes understanding and a confidence that our Lord reigns. Lord, I pray it will make for a salty, bright, aromatic, potent people that you will be glorified in and through it. So thankful for our time together this morning. We've been stirred, stirred up. Lord, we continue to give you an offering of song and giving and time and fellowship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.